0: Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, the show about the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. This week, we're off attending Effective Autism Global in San Francisco, but I thought I'd cross-post an interview I did on the Australian show The Jolly Swagman, which came out this week. If you're a regular listener to the 80,000 Hours Podcast, And you've already read a lot of the stuff on our website. You might find the topics a bit too familiar, and you should feel free to skip this episode. However, if you're either fairly new to 80,000 hours or effective altruism, or you're just interested to find out more about my personal views and how I ended up doing what I'm doing and how 80,000 hours has changed over the years, uh, you should find it pretty enjoyable. If you're somewhere in the middle, then things might start getting interesting for you around 24 or 25 minutes in. For the first 20 minutes, I'm mostly describing the background of what 80,000 Hours does and where we came from, which I'm guessing most listeners are already going to be aware of. So, without further ado, I bring you more of um, me, I guess. (laughs) From Swagman Media, this is the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here are your hosts, Angus and Joe.
1: Boom. All right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining me.
0: It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, I got to admit, I haven't been listening uh, to, to the show uh, until I was preparing for preparing for this episode. But well, I, I'm really okay. impressed with some of the guests you've you've gotten on, and, and you've really improved over the over the course of the last year.
1: Thank you, thank you. I, and
0: I, I might start stealing some of your guests for my intro.
1: <laughs> Likewise, because you you do your own podcast as well, the eighty thousand hours podcast.
0: Yeah, so got, got to get that plug in early. Before yeah,
1: straight, it went straight off the listening. bat.
0: Yeah, we've got the the eighty thousand hours podcast uh, with with Rob Wiblin uh, is uh, is the show. Um, the pitch is it's uh, to show about the world's most pressing Problems and how you can use your career to solve them, which I guess we'll, we'll be talking a bit about about today.
1: One of my favorite podcasts, after the Jolly Swagman, of course.
0: Oh, don't. There's no need. There's
1: no need. <laughs> so, Rob, we went to the same university, the ANU in Canberra.
0: Huh? I'd actually didn't know that.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Well, there you go. Well, I, of course, we didn't know each other at university. You were a few years ahead of me, but you uh, you studied genetics and economics, so you were top of the class when you graduated, and. You're probably one of the most interesting people from the anu that i've I've met because I mean you could have done anything and instead you've you've gone and joined the effective altruism movement, which I think is one of the great kind of exciting up and coming movements of our times so that's sort of what we're here to talk about and we'll talk about eighty thousand hours as well, which is a part of the EA movement let's start with EA more broadly just give us a definition of effective altruism
0: yeah so the summary we usually give is that effective altruism is the use of evidence and careful analysis to try to improve the world as as much as possible so in 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 any situation where you're trying to um, raise welfare as much as you can and you're trying to use evidence and like being really analytical about how you do it i guess we would class that as effective altruism Mm -hmm.
1: and how old is the movement
0: well uh, I guess the name uh, people came up with in 2011, mm. um, but of course, these set of ideas didn't start them by any means. Uh, it's, it's grown out of a whole lot of uh, you know, pre-existing uh, intellectual movements. Uh, I guess one of them is kind of utilitarian philosophy, mm-hmm. so Peter Singer and uh, uh, other moral philosophers like that. Um, there's also kind of the, the evidence-based medicine movement, the evidence-based like development uh, uh, movement, mm-hmm. um, and I think the third group would probably be GiveWell and perhaps the rationality community in in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who were interested in giving to you know, the most effective charities or uh, finding the most important problems to solve uh, were kind of clustered around San Francisco mm. in, in the 2000s and quite a lot of them have become uh, involved in what's now called the Effective Altruism Movement. Yeah,
1: and we should say GiveWell is probably the foremost charity evaluator in the world.
0: Yeah, they started in 2007 and their goal was to find uh, you know, charities that you could be really confident were having a very large social impact. We're, we're helping mm-hmm. people in a big way. Um, with each dollar that they received. Um, And I think now they are one of the uh, most rigorous and well-known charity evaluators in the world and they they move pretty substantial money with their recommendations. Mm.
1: So, all of these different threads, uh, utilitarian philosophy, evidence-based health, charity evaluation sort of coalesced into the effective altruism movement.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it was a coming together of, of all of those ideas and I guess trying to, to push them forward by pulling, you know, pulling together the best ideas from all of them.
1: And so, from when you graduated university, how did you find your way into the movement?
0: Well, I guess my interest in this, in this whole set of ideas goes back quite a long way. Um, yeah. When I was a teenager in Australia, Peter Singer is like a pretty well-known philosopher in Australia, obviously, and I, I encountered his ideas about uh, how we might have pretty substantial moral obligations to help other people in as much as our lives are going well and we have kind of surplus resources that we can use that would make a a much bigger difference to other people than than they would to ourselves. Uh, So I found out about that, I think, when I was like 14 or 15. I was reading some of his essays and... Yeah, it just really resonated with me. I thought, like, yeah, this is this is kind of right. If I'm like someone who's very wealthy by by global standards, uh, and you know, with very small sacrifice on my part, I can radically improve someone else's life, then that's something that I that I, that I really ought to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I also found out about his views on like animal animal rights and animal welfare, mm. and stopped eating meat around the same time. Um, but there wasn't really uh, a group that you could join that was thinking about uh, if you if you adopt this view that you ought to do as much good as you can, uh, what does that imply for your career or the rest of your life, um, beyond perhaps just donating some of the money that you earn? Mm. Um, and so, I continued to, continued to read about people who had kind of a similar outlook, uh, and I, that actually prompted me to, to switch into studying economics um, at, at university, because I found economists seem to share this worldview that's more than any <laughs> other discipline, uh, thinking about you know, how can you like, maximize the efficiency of the things that you're doing to have the largest yeah. impact. It's kind of an economic way of thinking um but i didn't perhaps make, make that much progress um until i found uh yeah kind of utilitarian interest groups online and kind of moral philosophy interest groups online and perhaps also the, the rationality community uh, le- less wrong uh and things like that and uh also the future of humanity institute at oxford which was thinking about kind of the long term future of humanity and where it's going and, and how we could push it in the right direction mm. uh I think that they were basically doing, yeah, the cutting-edge work, trying to figure out if you want to have the biggest impact with your life, uh, what, what what should you do? And uh, because I got to know or, or, yeah people involved in all those different groups, when in 2011-12, um, at Oxford University, a whole lot of uh, students there, and particularly PhD, uh, philosophy PhD students... Um, they actually formed a critical mass that allowed them to start an organization the center for effective altruism Uh, i found out about that pretty soon and people forwarded me uh this job advert for being their first director of research and said you should really apply for this this is the thing that you've been like talking about like since i since i've known you just obsessively like wondering you know how can you have the largest impact this is the perfect job so you should apply uh which i did Uh, i I didn't, didn't really know the people there very much so it was a bit of a uh you know crossing the world on, on a hope and a prayer and uh being hopeful that this movement would actually take off rather than kind of a charity collapsing a month after i arrived in in england yeah uh but it, but it worked out pretty well I've, I've been fortunate i guess uh to graduate right around the time that effective autism was taking off and uh, be able to get in on the ground floor
1: yeah that's awesome sort of seems like a perfect fit in hindsight and i think uh, one word to describe you is prolific. <laughs> like you, double edged confidence.
0: No, 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 no. The quality we're not going to comment on. But
1: no, 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 no. The, the uh, it, quality and quantity, and and it's uh, you know director of research seems to be um, a great fit for you. Uh, it's interesting how. How many Australians are involved in effective altruism? You know, really prominent EAs. You've you've got Peter Singer, Toby Ord, yourself. Is that just an accident of, of personal connections or...? Well, it's
0: it's not only them. Uh, there's uh, Brenton McIntyre, yeah. Uh, sorry, Peter, Peter McIntyre yep. and uh, Brenton Mayer, uh, two of my colleagues, also Australians uh, who, who moved over for to, to, to work in eighty thousand hours. There's Tara McAuley, um, Sam Dear in uh, the Centre for Effective Activism. So yeah, we are like extremely overrepresented. It mm. seems um, we've wondered what, what's going on there. I think. Part of it might just be the influence of Peter Singer that he's like better known mm-hmm. in Australia than perhaps anywhere else, and that leads people in, in this kind of philosophical direction. Uh, another possible answer is that you get kind of founder effects. So you know a couple of people come over, and then they, their friends in Australia find out about it. And yep. so it kind of spreads through social networks. Another possibility is that it's just like quite a good fit for Australian culture that we tend to be uh, very pragmatic in how we think about solving problems, and perhaps less inclined towards. Uh, Kind of continental philosophy, which leads to something of a different attitude. Um, mm. Australians tend to just kind of want to get get shit done, uh, and that's uh, kind of the attitude that um, effective altruism
1: tends to attract. Interesting. Did you have any other ideas what it could be? No, no. I think you've sort of covered them all. <laughs> it's probably as with with anything, it's probably a combination of, of all those different things. Yeah. But. And you were there during some of the you know the earliest conversations about the movement and, and what direction it should take. Can you tell us that the story I mean effective altruism wasn't always described as effective altruism, but I believe you were in the room during the debate as to what label should be applied to the movement. Can you tell us that story?
0: Unfortunately, I arrived a few months late to actually be
1: part of that conversation. Oh,
0: so, no. so I'll never be able to oh. say that I was there when the was, uh, was
1: constructed. Can you relay the story anyway?
0: Yeah, so uh, there was I guess like half a dozen, maybe a dozen people uh, in Oxford who were planning to start the centre for something, the centre of something and they were trying to figure out what should we call this uh, and they had a whole bunch of different options. I think strategic altruism was one of them like extreme do-goodery there was probably a bunch of bad ideas in yeah. there uh, and basically uh, they, they had a vote uh, on which one they thought was best and they went with effective altruism and, and, and they knew that whatever name they chose was going to stick and probably become impossible to change so it's a, it's a tricky thing whenever you're starting uh, a project that you have to make these decisions kind of blind very early on, not knowing how people are going to react. And mm. then uh, you're stuck with them basically forever because it'd mm. be so hard for us to change the name now. But yeah. I, th- I think they chose uh, fairly well. Um, th- there is a bit of a downside with the name effective altruism that it, uh, if-, if you say you're an effective altruist or you're part of the effective altruism movement, it sounds a little bit presumptuous perhaps. Because you're assuming that you are effective, and maybe even more effective than other people. So sometimes people <laughs> yeah. adapt to that.
1: It's more of an aspiration than more of an aspiration. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah.
0: aspiring effective actress is yeah. probably what we should call ourselves.
1: But I mean, it was it was very perceptive at the time that so much thought went into the name because, you know, names are very important. Like nominative determinism is is a thing, and it was funny. I, I was reflecting the other day on the the difference between. Uber and Lyft and the respective difficulties they've had with, with governments around the world, yeah. um, it'd be interesting to consider how much of that effect has to do with, with the names. You know, Lyft. <laughs> Lyft is a lot sort of uh, lighter and friendlier and, you know, mm. Uber is German for, for above. Yeah. Know, above what? The law? It has, it has somewhat negative association. <laughs> yeah. historically. Exactly. But, yeah, I think
0: a lot of the credit there actually has to go to uh, Toby Ord, who founded Giving What We Can, this group of people who give 10% of their income to the most effective charities or pledge to do that. It was pretty young people who were mostly involved in, in starting uh, this intellectual movement, at least in Oxford. But uh, Toby had a bit more experience and he, he he knew that you can have good ideas but if you put them the wrong way if you frame them the wrong way give them the wrong name that can really turn people off uh, and he i think he got everyone to think you know we have to get this right the first time mm. we have to think carefully about how we're framing it we have to think about objections that people might have and, and how we can address those mm. uh, and especially not caught kind of unnecessary controversy this kind of sometimes it's like aspects of, there's this controversial ideas that are kind of core to what you're pushing. Mm-hmm. But th- there can be this kind of juvenile attitude that people have of like wanting to get attention by being controversial and promoting ideas that, that get people's backs up. Mm. Um, but I think very often that's a distraction uh, from the, the core message that you're trying to push, which at least in our case, I think is is fairly uncontroversial that if you can help other people in a huge way at small cost to yourself, then yeah. maybe you ought to do that, or at least it would be good if you did that. And, you know, some people should be looking into, into how you can do that.
1: Yeah. So, you just mentioned Giving What We Can, and which was founded by Toby Ord and Will McCaskill. Yeah. And that's one of many EA organizations, which now, I guess, sort of form an ecosystem of different organizations. Mm-hmm. We've spoken about uh, Give Well, which preceded the EA movement uh, officially, but it's still an important part of it. There's the, I guess, the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, the Center for Effective Altruism, and then the most the most recent AI organization, which is 80,000 Hours. Um, and you're now the Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. That's um, it, yeah. You also host, as we mentioned at the beginning, the 80,000 Hours podcast. We're here in, uh, the, I guess, the home-slash-office of 80,000 Hours in Berkeley, California, where you guys have recently relocated. Um, so let's talk about that now. I guess, firstly... What does the name 80,000 Hours mean? What was the inspiration for that? So,
0: uh, initially, the project was called High Impact Careers, but we found uh, (laughs) people did not like that name. We we realized pretty fast that we'd chosen the wrong name. Uh, So, we became 80,000 Hours. And 80,000 Hours is approximately the number of hours that someone would work in a full-time career. So, I think it's uh, eight hours a day, five days a week, for uh, 50 50 weeks a year, for about 40 years. Um, And with that, we're trying to highlight that Eighty thousand hours is quite a lot of time. So uh, you should probably spend a decent amount of time thinking about how you're going to allocate all, all those mm. resources. You know, at least a few hours, maybe maybe even hundreds, possibly thousands of hours, mm. given, given given the stakes involved. But at the same time, 80,000 hours in your life is not that much relative to the to the scale of the problems in the world. Uh, you know, people, people do spend billions of hours uh, trying to solve all of these problems, and you've only got a tiny amount mm-hmm. relative to that. So you should really be very judicious about where you uh, spend that time, because uh, you, you can only buy, off a, buy it off a small fraction of all of the issues.
1: Mm-hmm. So what do you guys actually do as an organisation?
0: So we have a career guide on our website where we uh, offer all of our kind of core advice on how people can have a larger social impact with their career while also having a very fulfilling, fulfilling and and enjoyable career at the same time. uh, We are constantly producing kind of further research um, to look into the, like the world's most pressing problems and Mm -hmm. how we think people can solve them in the, in the biggest way in their career. So uh, for example, we're worried about like the risk of new pandemics Uh, is, is one of the, one of the problem areas that, um, we do a lot of research on, so we're we're looking for kind of high high impact jobs there, thinking you know what interventions can can one have that could help to con- contain diseases before they before they spread globally, mm-hmm. uh, and then we we publish that on on our website and and discuss it in the podcast. And we also look into particular career paths. And, uh, for example, we think that someone could ha- potentially have a lot of uh, impact in their career by going into politics in the United States. So we're doing research into, you know, what kind of roles do you have there? You've mm-hmm. got kind of think tanks, elected office, being a congressional staffer. Uh, and then we write up uh, reviews of those different uh, career options and how you can get into them and kind of try to assess how much influence the, they, they give you. And then there's also the uh, in-person uh, team who uh, have done coaching with people. So uh, in, in the past, people were able to apply for coaching through the website and get kind of one-on-one free advice from us on what we think that they should do that would allow them to have the biggest uh, social impact with their work. Um, at the moment, we're not uh, doing coaching. Instead, we're doing headhunting. So we're, we're trying this alternative approach where we find particularly high-impact roles and then see if mm. we can find someone who's a really good fit for them and, and get them to apply for that role and kind of and match them up. Wow. Um, we're just trying to figure out uh, you know, how the in-person team can have the biggest uh, impact themselves. Uh, there's, there's a whole lot of different ways that they could you know, help to get people working on the most pressing problems in the most effective ways. Mm. And we're just experimenting and testing which one gets the, the biggest uh, bang per hour of work. Uh,
1: so as we discussed, 80,000 hours is a relatively young organization. Why did you guys see a need to start it?
0: So, uh, our two founders, uh, Will McCaskill and Ben Todd, they were both studying philosophy at Oxford, Mm -hmm. and they thought that they wanted to have as much impact, you know, help people as much as possible uh, with their career. And so, they started just doing some research of their own, trying to figure out what job should they take? Uh, You know, should they go into philosophy? Does that have a big impact? Should they go into politics instead? Uh, Perhaps they should go and try to make a lot of money and, and donate that to effective charities. And they basically found no one had really tried to pull together this information before. So they, they, they were, everything that they were finding was basically kind of, kind of compiling original, original work. And I think pretty early on, a couple of months into, into just doing this investigation for their own sake, they gave a, a presentation at Oxford, which got a couple of dozen people along. Uh, and they explained basically the, the key ideas that they'd found. I think they, uh, this is, this is up on YouTube if you want to check it out. Although the, yeah, the, the we'll, information's we'll a it. little bit updated yeah. now, but they've found things like, you know, it seems like doctors don't actually save that many lives, but you can save a lot of lives if you give to like uh, really effective charities that work in the developing world.
1: Yeah. I think a doctor saves about 10 lives over the,
0: that, that's about right. Well, in, in, in rich countries, that's about yeah, right. Over the course
1: um, of his or her career. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so, so, so they like, gave up kind of the preliminary results that they'd found just after a small amount of investigation, and they found that a number of people in the audience completely changed their, 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 their life plans on the basis of this one presentation that they'd given. And so they began to wonder, maybe the most impactful thing that we could do is to continue doing this research and then tell other people about it. And, you know, if, if you can persuade just one other person to, to do the thing that you would have done with your life... Um, then potentially you 've like doubled your impact, uh, so there 's this argument that by doing advocacy by trying to change other people 's behavior, you can potentially get a lot, get a lot of leverage mm. uh, You can uh, it, it probably seems easier to persuade one other person to to take the career that you would have taken than to spend your entire life doing that career yourself. Mm. Uh, uh, and given that it seemed like they'd shifted several people's career plans in kind of a day or at least a few months of work, uh, there was a lot of gain here. Mm. So, it was a volunteer project for a while. They continued doing research and um, putting information up on the website and they got kind of enough promising signs that it was a useful thing to do that in 2012, they decided to make it a proper organization and, and hire their first staff member and they found people who were willing to donate and uh, kind of the, the rest is history. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, Rob, what kind of impact could people expect to have taking a job in a high-impact area?
0: Hmm. So in some of the, the priority areas that we're focused on, it's quite hard to, to measure the impact. Yeah, uh, It's very hard to like, tell how much you've reduced um, the, the risk of these things that may well not happen anyway. Uh, but kind of to set a lower bound, uh, we look at um, if you took like, a really low risk option where we're really confident of the impact, uh, how much good could you do? And uh, a good baseline there is to think, well, what if you like went and got just a professional job that you might have taken anyway, um, and then you donated that money to a charity that kind of saves lives at, at the lowest cost that we can find? And in that case, uh, if, if you look at kind of GiveWell's estimates of how much it costs to prevent someone from dying in the developing world of an easily prevented disease, uh, if you give to the Against Malaria Foundation, they predict that uh, it costs about seven thousand dollars to prevent someone, prevent usually a child, from from dying of uh, malaria. So, if I'm thinking about you know, the typical audience in, that you're talking to, is probably earning maybe or could earn somewhere between like 50000 dollars. So, you know, it's going to vary over the course of their career, but they might well be able to spare seven thousand uh, dollars each year without you know taking a dramatic hit to their quality of life. That'd still be able to eat out sometimes and you know, live in a, in a perfectly nice house. Um, which suggests that uh, they could, you know, save someone's life basically every year for over the course of their career, uh, at least at least on average. Which mm-hmm. would, you know, mean maybe they could save forty people's lives, and that's just taking like a very kind of conservative baseline where you're not necessarily pursuing a, a vastly different career. Um, you're giving, you know, a decent like much much more of your income perhaps than other people do, but not an amount that's going to be really hard to bear. Uh, and you're giving to like perhaps the safest option, like an option that's not that highly leveraged. Um, that you're not getting like uh, you know big gains in kind of the, the the possibility by taking risks in politics or research. You're just choosing the you know the absolute kind of safe in, in index fund, mm. and nonetheless you'd be able to like save 40 lives. You know have a massive impact on 40 different people. Uh, so I think that's just suggests this is a very important issue. If, if I said that you know at relatively low cost you could save 40 people's lives. Um, I think most people would say that's like a really valuable thing to do, hmm. and and we think it's it's more impact than than a doctor has in the rich world over the course yeah. of their career is is our estimate. Yeah. Um, in reality, I think if people focus on you know our priority areas and, and they're willing to kind of go hard and, and, and take some risks, they can have uh, much more impact than that potentially you know ten or a hundred fold as much. Yeah. Uh, but you know it's 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 harder to harder to prove that. It's more kind of a judgment call.
1: I know Will McCaskill says, you know, imagine if you rushed into a burning building and, and saved someone's life, you'd feel like an absolute hero and you would be. Yeah. Now, you know, multiply that by 40.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess just, just pressing the donate button on the website doesn't give you quite the same level of, level of satisfaction. No, people no. are not going to carry you through the streets. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you, you, you're, you're having a huge impact on, on real people.
1: Now, the most impactful career... Does that mean that you need to be a, a utilitarian or most people tend to be utilitarian when they come to ADK for advice? Are they thinking about how they can maximise the good that they create in the world?
0: So, if you're a utilitarian, you're likely to be very interested in our advice, but the vast majority of readers aren't, aren't utilitarians. Okay. Uh, to be honest, like I, I am quite sympathetic to that view, although I um, think we don't really... Have really strong evidence within moral philosophy to, to know uh, which approach is correct, if, if any of them. Mm. So one should generally be a bit uncertain about these things and give a bit of weight to, to, to every approach. But I feel reasonably confident that um, welfare is one of the things that matters morally, if, if anything does. Um, and that's actually why we focus on improving welfare of, mm. of people and, and animals. Yeah,
1: And welfare meaning, like, well-being, not necessarily yeah, exactly. social security. Right, payments. right, yeah, sorry.
0: yeah well, well-being, <laughs> uh, making yep. people's lives go well. Um, uh, we, we focus on that because basically every moral philosophy agrees that that's one of the things that matters, that it's very often bad when, when people suffer and that if they're, like, enjoying their lives or, or getting the things that they want out of life, then, that, mm-hmm. then that's better than if they don't. So, it's a fairly kind of unifying principle that most people are interested in. And, and if, like, just one of the things you care about is whether people's lives go well, that they, like, don't suffer unnecessarily, and mm-hmm. that they mostly have a good time and, you know, uh, achieve their goals and, and find fulfillment, then I think our advice is, is going to be going to be useful to you. Uh, and and that, that's, I think, why we have uh, quite a large audience is that kind of regardless of your philosophical views, uh, that there's potentially quite actionable things that you can mm. get from, from reading our career guide.
1: Would you describe yourself as utilitarian?
0: Uh, def- definitely utilitarian leaning. Yeah. yeah okay.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like uh, there's a correlation between people who are, um, high IQ and utilitarian leaning. Is that fair to say?
0: Uh, it's interesting. I've, I've seen surveys of moral philosophers, which suggest that they're pretty divided across a lot of different views. I think at least there's a correlation between kind of like analytical thinking, perhaps, and like kind of a mathematical style of mm-hmm. reasoning or a logical style of reasoning and utilitarianism. Um, I'm not sure whether like, you know, every kind of uh, or like every aspect of intelligence necessarily associates with utilitarianism. Yes, but.
1: yes. Yeah,
0: I think it might also just be that um, people who are more intelligent uh, are more drawn to kind of strong, consistent theories. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think people who are less intelligent perhaps spend less time thinking about this and more often go with kind of common sense uh, morality, mm-hmm. which is kind of a pastiche of all lots of different considerations yeah. thrown together,
1: or well, System One morality.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So it I wouldn't surprise me if you would find that kind of intelligent people are more likely to be utilitarians and more likely to be libertarians and more mm-hmm. likely to be deontologists and all these different things because they're more likely to kind of pick a theory and run with
1: it yeah so does the ea movement then think that uh, you know everyone can be persuaded across to pursuing high-impact careers or is it just temperamentally not for everyone
0: uh, well i think many people can be persuaded to make doing good for the world uh, with their career yeah. um, a significant factor uh, at least uh, most people who are, are relatively well off uh, or like, you know, live in rich countries where they don't have to worry about, you know, just surviving themselves mm-hmm. and providing for their, for their family. Um, I, don't think, I don't think most people are going to become utilitarians at any point soon, but, but precisely because uh, almost everyone would like the world to, to be better. Like yeah. we, have, we have surveys on this on like, what, what things do people worry about when choosing mm-hmm. a career? And from memory, about 80 or 90% of people say that uh, they would like their career to, to make the world a better place, to, to help other people. And that's mm-hmm. an, in, an important aspect. Of their work uh and when we've done research into what uh makes for for a good career uh what makes it enjoyable and fulfilling uh feeling like your work is meaningful which is basically comes down to feeling that it's useful to other people uh is one of the one of the key properties uh, of of a career that people want to stay in like medicine working medicine is like very unpleasant in some ways it's like very long hours difficult work you're you're dealing with like um potentially uh, tragic situations but uh people in in medicine tend to have like very high levels of satisfaction with their career and the key reasons that they find it meaningful because they feel like they're, they're helping people and, and, and in most cases they are mm. so i think even if you're kind of only concerned with self-interest then you have a reason to uh, want your career to to be actually uh, helpful to other people and it's it's I guess every so often I, I do talk to someone and uh, I, I explain what we do and you know what kind of advice that we give. And they just say, to be honest, I just don't care about other people. Uh, like I'm not going to choose a career based on these ethical considerations because fundamentally I'm a selfish person uh, and I just want to kind of provide for, for myself and my family and friends. But that's rare. I think mm-hmm. that's most people don't feel that way. Um, and when I encounter those people, I'm just like, Okay, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Yeah. But I'm not going to like spend my time trying to trying to change your mind because there's yeah. lots of people who are much more sympathetic yeah. And, and yeah, easier to please,
1: easier to persuade. Do you think that's rare because there are social norms against publicly stating that you don't care about other people, or it's rare because people are genuinely, you know, at least partly altruistic?
0: Yeah, I mean, a bit, bit of column A, a bit of column B. Uh, yeah. I think. It's, it's fairly rare for someone to want to use, say, most of their time or their money to help other, to, to help complete strangers, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, yeah, an unusual kind of psychological quirk. But I think most, like, yeah, humans just are very social animals. Uh, we want kind of the approval of others. Uh, we want to seem useful to the group and so we want to feel like we're contributing and probably there's, like, very strong evolutionary reasons why uh, people who were, like, useful to others uh, and, like, good to have around uh, were more successful uh, in the evolutionary environment and more more likely to reproduce. So we have these, like, pretty strong instincts. Like, I mean, when people feel like they're not contributing to society, I think it produces, like, a a lot of mental health issues potentially, Mm. a lot of of, uh, grief for them. Um, so yeah, I do think, you know, humans are very complicated animals. So we have like a lot of motivations, different kinds, but, uh, I think most people really do want to make a difference to the world. Uh, and uh, given, given like how humans evolved in these like uh, very cooperative societies, that's, that's not too surprising.
1: Hmm. So 80,000 hours helps people find the most impactful careers. And that necessarily means that you need to, to help decide between different causes. So, Firstly, let's talk about some of the, you know, the different cause areas that you guys recommend. And then secondly, you know, I'll ask you about how you actually manage to quantify them and and draw comparisons. So, you know, what are some of the things that you recommend people work in?
0: Yeah, so... We've only been able to look at kind of a, a fraction of, of the problems in the world because mm-hmm. there's, there's so many different ways of slicing and dicing them, uh, although we haven't we haven't chosen the ones that we've investigated at random. Yep. But some of the uh, things that we think are most important are uh, kind of global priorities research, so trying to figure out which problems are most important, given that not many people work on that. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, kind of disease control, uh, pandemic uh, prevention. We think people underestimate pretty significantly uh, how easy it could be for civilization to be pretty destabilized uh, by, by a disease that killed you know, hundreds of millions or billions of people. We're very interested in the development of kind of new technologies. So historically, we've seen that society has been kind of radically changed by uh, technology in the past. It seems like one of the main drivers of history. So, uh, you know, we invented uh, all all kinds of uh, machines that uh, made the Industrial Revolution possible and completely transformed the world and and human life. And so anything that looks like it, it could do that in future is potentially... Uh, something could have a very large effect on history and where you might want to have people uh, guiding how that how that technology appears. There's a bunch of different possible technologies that could have like a very big effect on history. Uh, one of the ones that's most prominent, people discuss it a lot now, is artificial intelligence. So what if we managed to make machines that could do general reasoning the way that humans do, uh, but do it uh, a lot faster perhaps or, or a lot more cheaply? How could that transform society? Um, and obviously, that could have very positive effects uh, if you could uh, get these like, AIs doing you know, tasks that humans can't do or doing all kinds of things that we do do now but, uh, but for us so we could just have lots of leisure time or at least a lot, a lot more wealth. Uh, but it could also potentially go badly if kind of the wrong people control this technology or they apply it in the wrong way or, or, or the AI uh, system is uh, kind of designed in a, in a way that puts it at odds, puts it at odds with kind of, uh, human interests. Uh, then there's other issues like preventing war. Uh, so, uh, like one of the ways that the 21st century could go uh, really badly would be if the United States and China ended up uh, fighting a, a kind of a great power war. Uh, decent chance that that could lead to basically the end of human civilization. Um, and there's obviously people in government trying to prevent that from happening. But there's not a lot of kind of charities that uh, or like organizations. Uh, in 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 the private sector or in the non profit sector that, that are focused on preventing that, even though it's potentially one of the most important uh, questions yeah. questions facing us. Then you've got kind of nuclear security in general. Uh, uh, we, we we do still face the possibility, basically, of civilization ending uh, if there's ever kind of a nuclear accident that mm. you know, that prompts a, a nuclear exchange between the US and China or uh, Russia and the United States. That's something that's like started getting a bit more attention in the last year or two, unfortunately, uh, for 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 all the wrong reasons. Um, I think, uh, what what other issues are there? There's also improving kind of decision-making procedures in government. Uh, So, some of your listeners might be familiar with the work of Philip Tetlock. Who's spent the last thirty years uh, doing research into uh, how to predict the future accurately? Hmm. Uh, how to yeah,
1: and also a former guest of the eighty thousand hours podcast. Yeah. Well, which, we can
0: stick up. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, yeah. uh, Philip's work. Uh, uh, I, was, I was very honoured to, to get to, to talk to him for a bit. Um, yeah, well, so you can stick up a link to that episode. Well, yeah, if it, in learning it more. was
1: a great episode. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. So he spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can you predict the future accurately, uh, and then how can you use that information to make better decisions. I mean, he's done a lot of this work for the US intelligence services, so there's a particular focus on kind of international relations and and politics and predicting disasters that might happen there and and how do you uh, prevent them. Uh, So I think his his work got a whole lot more funding after the Iraq war uh, when uh, a lot of people realised that basically a failure of intelligence, or at least something that was to some extent a failure of um, forecasting, of predicting whether Iraq uh, had... Um, weapons of mass destruction Mm. led to the waste of trillions of dollars and the the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives, basically. And so they turned to academics of various different kinds to figure out how they could improve the methods here um, so that you wouldn't uh, just get the groupthink and perhaps the political meddling that um, made the Iraq War possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, if you're interested in that, he's got this book, uh, Super Forecasting, where he describes how you can predict the future better. And we think that that could be extremely important because... Uh, bad decisions in government are uh, one of the key ways, again, that like the future could go very badly, and like civilization could be destabilized if you get mm-hmm. the wrong wrong decisions made.
1: So, that's so if you make of like sure a- that kind of
0: military generals are getting the right advice and you know have an accurate idea of what impact their actions will have, that could uh, be very good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, so, so, that, so that's sort of like a meta cause or an enabling factor that.
0: That's right. So, if you could improve this forecasting and decision-making uh, processes, then that would potentially have a lot of impact over many different areas. Mm. Uh, you know, if you could get this uh, into all government departments, it could improve policy making in education and in health and you know, all kinds of social policy, as well as uh, questions of kind of defense and security. Mm. Uh, so, that, that's one of the reasons why we think it could be quite high impact. Mm. That's, so, so that, that's, that's just a taste. But they're, they're, yeah, more, if people yeah. are interested, they can look at our, our problem profiles yeah. on our website. Yeah.
1: You've got your work cut out for you, people. <laughs> <laughs> we need to solve these starting now.
0: <laughs> yeah. we, we, we only have uh, about seven or eight staff. So, we do kind of have to narrow down our focus a bit. We can't know a ton about all of these different areas. So, at any point in time, we you know, pick, a, pick a handful of them and try to learn as, as much as we can about them so that we can offer you know, really good advice to people who are interested in going into those areas.
1: Uh, wow so one thing that strikes me about a lot of these causes is that for many people at first glance they would come across as very remote risks Mm. and i guess as a species almost by definition we're bad at thinking about tail risks Mm. especially existential risks because if we had experienced you know something that was that destroyed us um it, 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 we wouldn't have been around for that to have been built into our evolutionary psychology. Right. But I guess one of the key messages maybe uh, that w- we'd like to get across for this podcast is that these things are still really important to, to think about. And you don't, we don't, you know, we don't, want any more Stephen Pinker so I'm not sure if you've read Enlightenment now <laughs> I have yeah yeah quite, quite shocked at how we, and we discussed this in our episode with uh, Hugh Price the Cambridge philosopher but I was surprised at you know how someone of, of Pinker's um, credentials could be so dismissive of existential risks um, in, in Enlightenment now he thinks that you know they're sort of romantic dystopian ideas pursued by or funded by tech billionaires and they distract from the real problems like climate change so what do you think of that?
0: I was also somewhat uh, frustrated by by parts of Stephen Pinker's book, though I, I really respect him and and I liked uh, I liked a lot of what he was saying. But I think uh, we di- we dived into talking about like what what problems we think are most pressing in the world. Mm. Uh, but it's worth taking a step back and uh, thinking about kind of a how we assess problems uh, to to try to shortlist the ones that we think are are most important for people to focus on. So so the three criteria that we look at um, in each of our problem profiles or each time we review uh, a new new, uh, problem area is importance, tractability, and neglectedness. So importance or scale is we try to measure uh, how many people are affected by this problem and how much. Uh, So, for example, if you were thinking about, uh, you know, working on curing a disease, we would look at how many people, you know, have this disease, how many people are forecasted to have it in future and how bad is it for each of those people? You know, how much does it cause them to suffer or how much does it interfere with their life? Uh, Then uh, for tractability or solvability, we think, well, if we increase the resources going towards solving this problem by 10%, you know, how what, what, what fraction of that problem would we be likely to solve? Mm. Or, like, what would be our probability of completely fixing it, perhaps if you're thinking of just inventing a, a complete cure for a disease? So that gives you some idea of, like, uh, yeah, how easy is it to fix? Because uh, there's there's some issues that are like very big in scale and no one's working on them. But but you, that's because you can't fix them. So it'd be great if we could invent uh, a per- perpetual motion machine. That would solve a lot of the world's problems. with have unlimited energy. But it's it's, it's, it's uh, an intractable problem. And then there's neglectedness, which we often find drives uh, um, a, a lot of the a lot of the differences uh, between the problems. So. Because when people start working on a problem, they tend to choose the most impactful things first, and then once they've done that, they move on to things that seem somewhat less, solutions that seem somewhat less promising. You get this thing called declining returns. So if you're the first person to work on a problem, you can probably have a lot more impact than if you're the hundredth person to arrive or the millionth person to arrive working on a problem. Uh, So we very often look for issues that we think are big in scale and. Uh, can be solved, but that not many people are working on them. Uh, So a lot of your listeners will be worried about climate change. And we basically agree with the consensus view that this is like a a very serious problem uh, that that could be destabilising for civilization. But there is a lot of money spent already and a lot of people focusing their careers on preventing climate change. And for that reason, we suspect that a lot of the low-hanging fruit is already being taken, that a lot of the, the most impactful things that people can do are already being done. And adding one more person to that effort won't make such a huge contribution. Whereas some of the other problems that I mentioned are they're potentially similar in scales, similar in importance, or similar in the in kind of risk that they present to humanity, but there's far fewer people who are focusing their, their whole career on solving those problems. Um, and, and that's basically why they end up uh, look at looking particularly important. And this is a reason why we think if... If you're looking for the most impactful things to do, they're going to be weird <laughs> because things that seem absolutely common sense, lots of people have already noticed them and started working on them and you've probably heard of them before. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, we, we think of it as it's, it's inevitably going to be the case that if we're doing our job, the things that we're suggesting are going to seem a bit counterintuitive in some way. They, they, they probably shouldn't seem absolutely crazy, but they're, but they're not going to be completely mainstream. And and as as we've gone – as we've done more and more research, I think our advice has moved further and further away from the mainstream, which is exactly what you'd expect Mm -hmm. because we start out mostly knowing about what other people know um, and we're we're not yet ready perhaps to make – uh, bets that are, are strongly against the consensus but as we learn more and we think about these ideas and run them past other people and check them you can become gradually more confident that the ideas that you have that not everyone already believes uh, are actually worth pursuing that may, maybe they're not guaranteed to be right but they've got a good enough shot that this mm-hmm. is kind of the, the highest impact thing that, that you're at least we're able to work on
1: okay I'm glad you backed up so <laughs> so this so, sort of makes sense of that list of very unusual cause areas
0: yeah or at least yeah somewhat, somewhat obscure issues yeah yeah um Um, So then let's move on perhaps to to the the risk thing. So, yeah, people will have noticed that a lot of the issues that I mentioned were about kind of risk management and and risk management at kind of a civilizational level. So uh, what's going on there? I think there's there's two main drivers. One is that when you're thinking about uh, how to improve welfare as much as possible, uh, one issue that's kind of neglected in our view is the very long term. So there's about 8 billion people alive now but uh, humanity could potentially continue for hundreds or thousands of years, potentially even longer. So there might be, you know, until humanity dies out, there could be potentially trillions of people who, who live. And their interests are not hugely represented in kind of the political system, or uh, people don't tend to pay a lot of attention to that. There's some discussion of intergenerational equity, but given the, uh, the magnitude of the damage that we could do to them, um... And the number of people or the number of, you know, beings that, that could potentially exist in the future, I think that the long term doesn't get as, as much weight as probably it ought to. And that's a reason why issues that affect future generations primarily, we think are kind of neglected by our economic and political system. Uh, and, and you can see that in climate change, but I think that the same thing has played out in, in, all, in, in these other problem areas. And uh, we're particularly focused on problems that we think could lead to human extinction because that would preclude the existence of all of these future generations. So, um, yeah, if we were to have a nuclear war that resulted in in all people dying, that would be absolutely terrible for the current generation, you know, one of the worst things really possible. But it would also be a catastrophe catastrophe for all of the future generations that could have existed. Uh, And I I have an episode with uh, uh, the... Uh, philosopher Toby Ord uh, about this issue of, you know, how should we think about intergenerational equity and, and, and the long-term future and how much weight should we give it relative to other things? So that's one reason to focus on kind of uh, making sure that humanity doesn't die out or that civilization doesn't really run off the rails. Another uh, reason why we focus on these risk management things is, as you said, uh, we think humanity is, qu- or like people in general are quite poor at thinking about risk. Uh, and i think there are good evolutionary reasons for that mm. that the kind of risks that we faced uh in the historical environment where you know human the human mind was evolving are not really like the ones that we face now uh we we, we could like since we invented nuclear weapons we did have the ability to just cause the human race to end uh but there was nothing like that uh, in, in in the ancestral environment and so we don't really think uh, that much about tail risks and kind of these extreme uh, but somewhat unlikely events. It's, it's very hard for us to get kind of, for them to have quite the emotional salience that they ought to have, mm. for them to like, to scare us as much as they should. Mm. And for that reason, uh, tail risks often, often get neglected. But at the same time, sometimes they get overweighted. Uh, so, terrorists, for example, exploit the fact that if something is extremely visually uh, distinctive, that they, they, they do precisely the things that kind of terrify us even if they're not necessarily killing that many people. And Mm -hmm. so they can make us overweight particular risks. Yeah, this is
1: called the availability heuristic.
0: Yeah, so the availability heuristic is that we assess how common things are by how much we can remember them. And Mm -hmm. because terrorist attacks are so vivid, so striking, uh, we tend to think that they're more common than they are because they stick out in our memory. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's ways that we can end up uh, paying too much attention to particular risks and also ways that we can end up uh, neglecting them. And it's basically something that uh, we're not very, not terribly good at reasoning about as individuals, not, nor as a civilization or as, or as countries. So, you know, we've spoken to people in government about these issues, uh, uh, bureaucrats and politicians, and they'll often say, you know, you're right. These are like very serious risks that we're facing uh, and someone should be focused on that. But I can't do that because that's not what the electorate demands. Uh, there's no money for it in, in, our, in our budget. Uh, there's no uh, political demand for it. So this is just something that I don't have the discretion to work on, even though I think it's very important. Uh, and so basically, the fact that we're not terribly good at reasoning about um, risk and particularly about like high stakes, low probability risks, um, goes up the political system and means that as a as a civilization as a species we're just um kind of flying blind (laughs) we not 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 nearly as much resources is given to these things and not nearly as much reasoning goes into these things as as would be ideal
1: wow well you you got i'm glad you guys are thinking about it i mean you've sort of turned this whole field of what should we work on into a science (laughs) like I, i wouldn't say that i think okay
0: uh Perhaps early on in the appearance of effective altruism, uh, there were people who wanted to, to make this into a science, uh, but it does involve a huge amount of judgment calls. Uh. And especially because we're working, like we think that the most important areas to work in are very often kind of new areas or like problems that not many people have worked on. So there's often not a huge evidence base. There are things where you're, where you're doing the initial discovery. Uh, there's quite, you have to be a bit speculative, a bit willing to, to deal with um, imperfect evidence. Uh, which means that you have to rely quite a lot on human, just, just human judgment, like knowing a lot about the world and knowing a lot about history and being able to to make good decisions in a very uncertain environment about what, what matters the most and yeah. what, what things will work to solve them. Uh, and that means that it doesn't look so much like the natural sciences. It looks more like social science where the okay. evidence is much worse, much patchier, and you have to accept the fact that uh, often there just isn't a, a paper that settles an issue.
1: Yeah. So, speaking of which, going back to the criteria you guys use for prioritizing causes of importance, tractability, and neglectedness. So, I'm sort of imagining three axes in my mind, X, Y, and Z, Mm. one's importance, one's tractability, and one's neglectedness. Mm. And if you had an issue that was equally important, tractable, and neglected, it would sort of form a cube along those three axes, and you could almost weigh the volume of that cube against other issues. But are uh, each criteria equally weighted? Like, is one unit of importance equal to one unit of neglectedness to one unit of tractability?
0: So, w- we define and then measure these terms in such a way that you can multiply them through. And, and you're exactly right. Okay. Then the volume does indicate kind of how pressing it is, all or, or things considered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of the math is a little bit difficult to go through in audio, but uh, you can link to yeah. our framework right, where, I, where we explain kind of how we get things to cancel out such that it does work it does, it does work smoothly. Yeah. And if you can uh, kind of estimate each of these three parameters, then, uh, yeah. then then the cube is is
1: is the pressingness. Wow, so you, you guys actually have modeled this.
0: Yeah, uh, this model comes from Owen Cotton Barrett, who's uh-huh. a mathematician at, at Oxford, uh, who now kind of does global prioritization research. Um, I think initially the importance, tractability and neglectedness framework started out as this qualitative thing where people were just kind of saying, well, this seems like very important. This seems like very solvable or like very hard to solve. And you know, uh, it seems like a lot of people are working in this or not many, so they just kind of score it on out of five. Uh, but he found a way that you can uh, attach, you know, specific measurements to each of these words, uh, that matches how we talk about it, but also means that when you multiply them, it's actually a meaningful number. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you can, yeah, you you can try to be more precise about it than just saying this is like very neglected or not neglected.
1: Mm -hmm. So speaking of AI, I mean, this is an issue that I've been thinking a lot about recently. We just spoke to Hugh Price on the podcast and I've been reading Bostrom's book, Superintelligence. What are some of the key AI risks and, you know, why is it an issue we should be worrying about?
0: Mm. So, we think it's uh, an important issue because the scale of the impact could be very huge, both positive and negative. There's not that many people working on it. And it also just seems like there's things that we can do that would um, really re- reduce the risk and, and increase the potential upside. So, there's, there's a lot of potential... Uh, you know ways that AI uh, could could go wrong. One might be that it's used in military technology, so this becomes kind of a, a new a new arms race between countries, uh, and that most of the advances are in you know how do you use AI in a, in a hostile way, and it could be could be very destabilizing to the international order. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that people have talked about is that. Um, artificial intelligence could very, uh, rapidly take many people's jobs and, you know, be, be socially very destabilizing. Uh, and we might not figure out, uh, a way of kind of transferring, uh, money from people who make a whole lot of, uh, out of, um, these artificial intelligence and machine learning advances to kind of everyone else so that people, you know, so that most people benefit from it. Yeah. Uh. A more um, extreme way that things might go wrong is if you have an artificial intelligence system that is you know, significantly more intelligent than, than humans typically are, and perhaps can think much faster than we can because just messages move uh, much faster on silicon chips than, than they do in the, in the human brain, um, and you know would have uh, a short-term memory that's much more than seven items, so it might be able to you know quickly have insights that, that humans might not might not be able to have, and then if we give it a goal that kind of isn't what we really meant, so. Uh, there's, there's all these like stylized examples of how this could potentially go wrong. The classic one is kind of the, the, the paper clipping factory where yeah. you, you, tell a, you tell an AI to make as many paper clips as cheaply uh, as possible and it just ends up converting the whole world into paper clips. I, like, obviously, it's not going to go down that way. But just in general, if you have uh, machine intelligence that has a lot of processing power and you know, uh, even the, the ability potentially to, to improve how well it thinks... Um, yeah, that's a very powerful machine. That's like a, a, you know, an intellectual rocket that, that, that's taking off. Um, and you really want that rocket to be pointed in the, in the right direction. If it's, uh, if it's pointed in the wrong direction, it's just going to move further and further away from our goal or you yeah. know, never really get to what we want. Uh, and, and there is certainly this risk that if, if we give an AI system a goal that isn't what we want and it has the ability to you know, think about our intentions and predict the future very well, it, it could realize that... Um, a risk to it achieving its goal is that we're going to turn it off and we're going to like stop it from achieving its goal because it's not what we intended for it to do. And uh, in that case, you know, you very quickly become adversaries and it's going to try to figure out uh, how can I make sure that, that the humans aren't turning off. Now, I don't think that's actually going to happen because people have noticed this issue and they're f- finding ways of making AI uh, corrigible, which is this term for um, able to realise that uh, its goal is mistaken in, in some sense and, yeah. and, and undo it. But there's other problems of that kind that... Um, seem harder to solve and that, um, probably others that we haven't even realized yet. And we basically need people to do this technical research to figure out how do you design a machine learning system that can, you know, notice errors that we can correct it, that it's not going to run out of control, that it's going to do the things that we want. And, and just current algorithms don't have these properties. Um, they're not easy to inspect. Um, they're not potentially easy to stop. They don't notice their own mistakes. They don't notice when they're, um, that uh, when the environments change, and so they're, they're doing something that was not uh, the original goal. Uh, there's all kind of fa- kinds of failure modes that they have. And if uh, readers are really interested in diving into this, there's this great paper called uh, "Concrete Problems in AI Safety" uh, that describes six different ways that um, these algorithms uh, kind of deviate from what what humans want. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, if, if you make them much more powerful, then they can like deviate in, in ever greater ways. So, what, what should people do? Uh, if you're someone who's a machine learning researcher, then obviously you can do that kind of technical research. You can understand how these algorithms function and uh, design, uh, you know, parts in them that, that undo these that that makes these mistakes less likely. If you're thinking about international relations or politics, then you can think, you know, what kind of policies should be adopted? How can you have kind of treaties between countries that ensure that um, machine learning is not used in an adversarial way, that um, people kind of coordinate? And in particular, that they coordinate to not develop the technology really quickly because they're in some kind of race against one another. Um, and so they have to scrimp on, on these safety issues and, and making sure that they're, that they're not going to uh, go wrong in some unanticipated way. Yeah. So there's like... Yeah, those are some of the approaches that you could take. Um, we, we have a, a quite a long problem profile, uh, three podcasts, uh, a couple of follow-up <laughs> articles on this uh, on our website. Um, if, if you find that what I'm saying is a little bit surprising or confusing or not, not completely convincing, then that would be pretty sensible. Mm-hmm. Um, some of what I'm saying isn't, isn't completely common sense. Uh, but we, you know, we, we flesh that out in, in, in these articles and kind of explain some of the details that I've had to skip over here.
1: Great. We'll, we'll link to those as well. Okay, so we've sort of spoken about one side of the equation, which is which are the most important causes to work on if you want to have an impactful career. But I guess the the other question is, you know, what's the best fit for the individual? So, how do individuals decide which which career path they might choose personally?
0: Yeah, so we have an article in the Career Guide about this that, that you should link to. Yep. Some of the key uh, things that we say in there are that personal fit is very important. Sometimes people misread us as saying there's kind of like one most important career that Mm. everyone should do. Um, But that's absolutely not the case because people differ so much. There's there's, there's no way that just a few things could be the most important because it's going to depend on your specific circumstance. And uh, if you look at the evidence on kind of uh, achievement, it seems like, the, the most successful people in most fields are, are vastly more successful than, than the average or the kind of the median person within that field. So you see this in kind of scientific research uh, in business, in politics, that, uh, you know, people in the top 1% of success are, are, are getting most of the citations, they have kind of most of the political power, uh, they're making most of the profits in business. This, this doesn't definitively show that, like, personal fit is so important because it could be that um, the outcome is somewhat random and that it's... Uh, you're getting like, uh, very, very skewed outcomes, but that's not only because of personal fit. But I think it's pretty suggestive that uh, if, if you're like more likely to be one of those people who really thrives in a field, then uh, you're like much more likely to ha- have a large impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, we discussed that. Then there's a question of, uh, given, given that personal fit seems to matter quite a lot, uh, how should you figure out um, what you're good at? And the bottom line there is that it doesn't seem like it's possible to find that out uh, without actually trying to do things. So there's kind of career aptitude tests and these personality tests that um, try to tell you know whether you're a good fit for for X, Y, and Z. Uh, they don't really have that much predictive value, uh, unfortunately. What, what's far better, far more predictive of your like performance in a job is doing a work test. So take take a thing that you'd have to do in this job, like for me, I guess it'd be like hosting a podcast or, or writing writing an article, and try to do it. And then uh, get the get the people to assess how how good you were at it. Um, that's yeah, that that gives you like a better idea than anything else, perhaps unsurprisingly, of, of how likely you are to, to be good at, at that job. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might, might think, wow, just doing like one piece of work that doesn't really give you enough time to learn, uh, which is exactly right. So we, we suggest that early on in people's careers, when they're undergraduates or early graduates, that they try to do a whole lot of internships, uh, usually in like quite disparate areas. So, you know, do an internship in politics, do an internship in business, like do do an internship in uh, the nonprofit sector, and then see what, which one of these things seems like uh, the, the best fit for you. Um, and then after you graduate, at least to begin with, uh, keep like moving job every kind of year or two until you find something where you feel like, yes, I'm nailing it here. Like this is this is really the the place for me. Um, and potentially, if you just keep getting into jobs where you don't feel like like you're killing it, then you should maybe just keep switching for, for potentially quite a while until you do find something that uh, where, where you you have the potential to be to be really extraordinarily good.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm curious, has any of your career advice changed over time?
0: Yeah, it's changed in in a bunch of ways. Uh, I think early on, we talked a lot about earning to give. So, this was the idea that one of the highest impact things that you could do would be to go out and make a lot of money and then give it to effective charities. Mm. Um, I think part of the reason why we talked about that was both that it seemed like a good idea and also that the media was very interested in covering this. So Okay. Uh, Whenever we talked about it, it kind of uh, had its own momentum. And people would ask us about this all the time. Because uh, So, so the framing that journalists would give it would be, uh, you know, maybe the most moral thing you can do is to become a banker. And this was, uh, you know, soon after the financial crisis. And so, this was like very counterintuitive to people. Uh, And so, it was kind of an interesting story to run. Um, but, but we did think then that this was potentially very, very high impact. And, and, and we do think that it's uh, high impact now. But uh, as we've looked more into other areas like doing uh, science, R&D, or going into politics, um, or even just uh, you know, starting a new nonprofit organization focused on one of these priority areas, mm-hmm. we think for many people, maybe most people... Um, at least people who are like, willing to take risks and be, and be very ambitious and aggressive with their career, that uh, very often those will be uh, the, the higher impact mm-hmm. uh, paths. And I think we kind of updated our website to, to indicate that in around 2015. Uh, what are some other areas? I think over time we've also come to appreciate the importance of personal fit, as we were talking about. Perhaps we, uh, early on we didn't give, didn't give that quite enough weight. Uh, I guess, as I was saying, also we've become more confident in some of the counterintuitive problems uh, that we um, encourage people to work in. So so early on, uh, we talked quite a lot, quite a lot about um, global health and poverty. And we think that is a, a, an important issue. Um, and it was one of the areas where the evidence base is much stronger. So you can get um, a much better sense of what kind of impact you might have, either giving money or, or working um, within the area of you know, trying to prevent people from dying of these easily prevented diseases in the, in the developing world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so that was a natural place to start when you're a bit unconfident is to choose something that seems like re- really impactful, um, uh, where, where you can get really strong evidence of what, what the impact is. Mm. Over time, yeah, we've moved away from these like more more common sense answers towards uh, these more unusual uh, answers. So we we were aware of these other considerations, like what about preventing war? You know, what about steering the development of new technologies? But when you've encountered these ideas, uh, you know, we've only heard about them a couple of months ago or a few years ago. You really want to go and double check your reasoning, in as much as they like run against common sense. And basically, over time, we did that. We ran it past a lot of people. We like thought about it more and thought, no, actually, these things really are important. Uh, and so we've like. You know, gradually started being more aggressive and saying, yeah, th- th- we think that these are some really, uh, really pressing problems that would that be very valuable to get more people working on. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we kind of changed our mind on was early on, we were worried about the fact that when you take a job, very often you're displacing someone else from that job. So you can imagine, uh, let's say you're applying to work in a nonprofit and, and you get you get a role. Uh, isn't it the case that kind of someone else would have gotten that job because they had a whole lot of applicants to that, to that job? And so really how much impact are you, are you having? Uh, maybe it, this suggests that you'd have a larger impact potentially by going to work uh, and, and, and earning to, to, earning to give because right. it's very likely that the other person who would have gotten you know, the job in, in banking yeah. wouldn't have been giving nearly as much of their money.
1: So this is the concept of marginal impact as opposed to absolute impact?
0: Well, I think uh, counterfactual impact maybe is the term. So you've got to really okay. think about actually what would have happened otherwise. And, and we thought at the time that if, if you apply to get a job, almost always that job would have been filled by someone else who was similarly as good, especially in um, kind of high prestige or high interest roles. And I think we were wrong about that. Uh, very often, at least in kind of the, the high skilled roles that we're encouraging people to go into, uh, the best candidate is is significantly better than the second best candidate. And if that candidate were to disappear, there's a decent chance that they just would hire no one at all, uh, which was somewhat surprising to That's us. That's
1: interesting. So, how did you actually ascertain that
0: i think asking people uh, like learning more (laughs) yeah learning more just about kind of the world of business and nonprofits and politics uh it it just turns out that i guess maybe because personal fit and kind of experience and skills are are so important uh very often there there really is only one at least in these uh you know high skill roles there's really only a few people who are able to do them to a really high caliber uh and and if you can't get that person i mean in 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 these high skill roles there's a lot of potential to mess things up and to make things worse, and so someone who doesn't know what they're doing, uh, very often pe- people will be too risk averse to hire anyone. Mm-hmm. So they want to get someone who they really trust, and there just aren't a lot of people who fit that bill. So yeah, that that push in favour of people doing direct work—that mm-hmm. uh, is—so so that that was one of the things that made us less keen about earning to give and more yeah. pushing towards people towards just doing uh, jobs that seem directly valuable. Uh, Another issue... Well, initially, we were very interested in trying to like assess which roles are more replaceable than others... And I think we concluded that it's just kind of too hard to measure. Mm. So that brought us actually back towards kind of the, the common sense view that you should just take the job that seems like highest impact in itself and then hope that the, kind of the, the, this replaceability consideration kind of cancels out across the different roles. Um, because yeah, if you can't get evidence of how it differs, then uh, it, it can't really guide, your, guide mm. your decision. So yeah, we have a blog post that we can link to about that, about how our view changed about replaceability.
1: Great, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how dynamic you guys are in terms of your one impression i get from eighty thousand hours and i guess the AI yeah, movement more broadly is how um you know self-aware it is constantly willing to you know up, update and upgrade the ideas
0: yeah i think early on our views changed a lot we're not terribly ideological uh we're, we're really quite pragmatic because we're trying to achieve particular outcomes like mm. improve welfare and we're not very committed to you know how how you might do that so, inasmuch as someone turned up evidence that, you know, you, you could potentially have a very large impact by going into politics, we had no particular reason to um, deny that or, or, or argue with that. We just, like, um, well, I, guess, I guess we scrutinize it, right? But we're not committed to our pre-existing view. Uh, we're, we're very happy to change. And I think uh, most people react the way, the way that you do that, it, like, adds to our credibility when we change our minds. So, we have a mistakes mm. page on our site where we talk about things that we've done wrong and yeah. like, incorrect conclusions that, that we reached. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think it's good to be open about that. There's just no way that kind of at the start of the project you can know all of the answers to these things. So, no. it, it, it absolutely is the case that our, that our views should change early on. I think our views kind of have stabilized a bit over time, um, which you might think maybe we're, we're getting old and sclerotic and uh, not, not mentally flexible enough. It could also just be that kind of we've settled on better answers and so it's yeah. now harder to overturn these results that yeah. uh, we've kind of believed for some
1: time. As the Director of Research, what's your intuition about how much they'll change over the next five or ten years?
0: I think we'll definitely uh, change some of the priority problem areas. and will, at least we'll like expand to some new mm-hmm. ones, especially as we get like more, more researchers and writers and people working yep. on the in-person team. So we can have more, have more focus areas. Uh, I think we may get better evidence about the impact of kind of advocacy versus research versus direct work versus earning to give. Um, I mean, certainly the, the circumstances might change. So uh, over time, we found that it was easier to raise uh, quite a lot of money than, than we had expected, but somewhat harder to get people who are great fit for the roles that um, we were trying to hire for and that other um, groups are trying to hire for. Mm-hmm. So, that pushed against only to give. That was maybe more of a change of circumstance and kind of a, a change, change of opinion. Um, I think the core career guide is going to remain fairly the same because with the, with the core of the career guide, a lot of what we're saying is just summarising consensus wisdom from social science about what makes for a satisfying career and, and how do you find a role that's a good fit for you? How do you develop skills that are, that are really useful? Um, th- that's not the area where we're kind of making, uh, you know, offering unusual views. With, with that, we kind of just want to go with, with the best uh, evidence that's, a, that's available. So that's, that's fairly solid. Um, an area that we're still exploring is how do you get people to coordinate very effectively? So initially... Uh, there was only kind of a dozen, or like a couple of dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people who were interested in following this advice. So the question of like, how do you organize yourself as a group to have more impact by working together was less relevant. But as the effective altruism community has expanded, there's more, there's thousands of people um, who are trying to have a large impact with their career, and they're working across many different areas. Um, and they're somewhat connected by this reputation that the effective altruism community has as a whole. Uh, and so there's there's ways that if they coordinate well and share evidence well and work together, they can have a much larger impact. We think, um, but also if people mess up and uh, do you know disgraceful things that harm the reputation of everyone else, uh, that can make things worse. So this question of yeah, how do you coordinate large groups effectively is um, going to become more important, hopefully become more important as the the number of people following our our advice uh, grows.
1: So, one feature that seems to distinguish the jobs in a lot of these cause areas that you guys have identified is that the roles are highly competitive. So, what advice would you have to a young person, say a graduate who has a relevant degree and wants to do something highly impactful with his or her career, but probably doesn't have the skills or experience as of yet to obtain one of these roles?
0: Yeah. So, this is one of the most important articles in the career guide is how to build up career capital, cool. uh, which we define as anything that puts you in a better position to have an impact in the future. So obviously, that includes skills that you might learn at, at university or, or on the job. Uh, also, credentials that can open doors. that Otherwise, would just be closed to you as uh, people who you know, who can like tell you the information that you need or give you the, the introductions that you need. Uh, also, sometimes just having money in the bank gives you a lot more flexibility to, to change jobs. So, there's all, all kinds of things that um, enable you to have a larger impact and, and get these high-impact roles in future. So, we talked there a lot about, you know, uh, what kind of majors are good if you're an undergraduate, what are the best jobs to get straight out of university if you can't immediately get one of these high-impact roles, what other ways can you build up career capital, how, how can you meet the people who you need to know, when is it a good idea to do a PhD and further education, and, and when is it not, and, and what kind of self-training can you do that, that adds the most um, value. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, there's, there's a lot we could go into there. Maybe, maybe yeah. we should just direct people to,
1: to that article. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that, well, at least, you know, you've, it sounds like you've got the answers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we, we, we have some answers. Yeah. I guess, uh, what, what's a few highlights? We tend to encourage people to go into fairly challenging, often quantitative uh, majors in mm-hmm. university uh, because very often the skills that you learn there are things that are very hard to learn outside of a structured course. Uh, we encourage people to, early in their career, take jobs that, le- that make them fairly flexible, that teach them skills that will be relevant in quite a large number of roles. Because very often early on in your career, you don't know what you're going to be doing. So, learning some very narrow technical skill that doesn't transfer to any other job is a bit risky. Mm. So, instead, it's useful to learn something like how to write well, which you're very likely to need in, in a wide range of roles. And then in terms of uh, doing PhDs, oh, yeah. we encourage people to probably not start them straight out of university unless they're really confident they want to go, go into an area, go into a field. Instead, uh, you know, try maybe you know a job or two before you commit to doing four to seven years on, on a particular uh, research topic. Uh, because we have just seen a lot of people do PhDs because they're kind of on, on autopilot and they just want to continue studying because it's too scary yeah. to enter, to enter the, the real world of work. Um, and then they get towards the end of it and they're like, wow, I just... Burned a bunch of years and I don't want to work in the suit
1: anymore. I want to loop back to effective altruism now. You know, we, we began by talking about EA and under the definition of altruism, it, it would seem to entail sort of, you know, giving something away, um, whether that's a part of you or, or, or something you own. How does the concept of, you know, having a high impact career and the, you know, the organization of 80,000 hours fit under that definition? Because if you're not earning to give, then you're not necessarily demonstrating altruism
0: yeah so altruism is often defined as helping other people at your own expense uh-huh. but i mean to us we don't care whether it's at your own expense or not if it's good for you then all the better so probably a more accurate term would just be helping helping uh, if you help other people and you enjoy it then that's fine so we don't particularly it, it's not good from our point of view of someone sacrificing if they're like paying yeah. an extra cost to, to help someone yeah um, i think that's something that people get a bit obsessed by it because they want to show off uh, how um, giving they are or how much they want to help even at, at cost to themselves. And that can sometimes lead people to do things that are less effective but, uh, but more showy of the, of the cost that they've paid. Um, but yeah, we're, we're not terribly interested in, in, in that kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. You're just thinking about the best outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, if you're having a great time and, and it's absolutely no sacrifice for you, then, then all the better. And I think for, for many people, um, the highest impact careers that they can take are, you know, are really interesting. And like, they're often jobs that, that pay quite well because mm-hmm. they're, they're viewed as roles that are important in society. And so, they, they tend to pay um, for, to, to, to get the right people. So, I think for most people, uh, being in, like, you know, pursuing a high-impact career in the way that we recommend ranges between like, a small sacrifice and kind of a small gain. Uh, I, I don't think it tends to affect the, the well-being of the people who we're coaching or who are reading our advice very much one way or the other.
1: Mm. As a prominent effective archerist yourself, Rob, are there any areas where the effective altruism movement is going wrong?
0: Yeah, that's a um, very good question and one that I ask a lot of my guests because <laughs> uh, we're, we're interested to get feedback and, and respond to it. I think I used to have really good answers to that and like strong answers to that. Uh, but I feel we have been reasonably good at, at improving in some of the ways that uh, people have criticised us for. I think well, one was, for example, uh, people not being friendly enough. Uh, and I think that was partly a symptom of the fact that, you know, we attract people who in really enjoy debating and really enjoy kind of uh-huh. arguing about big ideas. And so that that can potentially lead to kind of uh, heated discussions. Also just a lot of the conversation happens online and, you know, Facebook and just text is not a great medium for, you know, having, having really friendly exchange, no. but, 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 in person people were really nice, but p- people have learned uh, this lesson to try to be more polite than they would mm-hmm. otherwise be. Uh, and, and that's made things more enjoyable in, uh, in, in, in the community. Uh, I think one way that we're still potentially failing is that we tend to attract people who are very yeah, analytical thinkers. They, they enjoy theory. They love abstraction. And, and we do a lot of that. Uh, but that means that we can potentially neglect doing, going into the nitty-gritty details of collecting the you know, empirical information from the real world about, uh, the, about the problems that we're worried about and how to solve them. So, for example, if you're worried about pandemics, pandemics, um, there's a lot of people who you know, have expressed concern about this for a long time, but relatively few who have gone into you know, what specific diseases to worry about, what are the technical details of like, how they would change in a way that's dangerous, what policies uh, could you do and how would you get them implemented, how do people feel about those policies in government, in the bureaucracy, what are the challenges. That, that kind of information can be uh, harder to collect and it feels maybe a bit more like a slog to people because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's uh, just so many facts to, 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 to pull together to yeah. figure out what to do. But it's very hard to have an impact without at some point engaging at that level of detail and really understanding uh, how to act in the world. So, that's something that I'm trying to improve with, with the podcast because uh, very often i talk to people for, for two yeah. or three hours, kind of subject matter experts, and just grill them on all of these details. Uh, and then, then we put up the transcript and people can listen to it if they're interested. And it, it's very hard to kind of write really polished articles that have that level of detail. But in a conversation, you can cover a lot of ground quite fast. Perhaps another issue is that I talk to quite a lot of people who are looking for ways to have an impact. Uh, by volunteering or kind of doing internships or just doing it on the side. And I think that that is quite hard, at least in the, the priority problems areas that we, that we talk about. Typically, in order to make a difference, you need to become really specialised in some way, kind of an expert in some way, and you're just much more likely to achieve that if you find a way to to do the work full time so I guess I would encourage more people to think about yeah how can I become the you know someone who's very good in in at least you know maybe some narrow area over the course of my career um, and that avo- allows you to kind of avoid uh making mistakes because you're doing something perhaps in another, you know you, don't, you just don't have the experience to know how things can go wrong um, so there's a lot of people who you know Promote uh, ideas from effective altruism um, in kind of a casual way, and very often that's useful. But there's also a lot of ways that you can do that badly. If you explain the ideas uh, in a way that's you know unappealing, or you know as I said unnecessarily controversial, or just confusing, that that can turn people away. Um, and of course, people who are doing that full time learn these things very quickly, and then can do an excellent job. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who's volunteering, it's you know a bit more hit, a bit more hit and miss. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I guess that there's this whole issue of kind of quality control perhaps so like trying to do things maybe fewer things to a very high standard rather than like many things in a scattershot way that's perhaps another way that i feel we could get um, uh, improve a bit
1: awesome rob this has been an amazing conversation and you know i really appreciate your time and i think it's it's clear how passionate you are about these issues and i think we're probably all glad that you've dedicated your considerable intellectual energies to thinking about how to make the world a better place and not just you know some corporate career but at the same time do you ever experience regret or I guess what Elaine de Baton would call status anxiety <laughs> knowing that you probably could have gone and a very high-powered salary somewhere else but you've sort of foregone that to work on these causes
0: uh no no not even close so, <laughs> so one thing is that um my salary is fine. It's true, I don't make quite as much as I uh, would if I went into the, into the private sector and really tried to maximize my earnings. But I think my, my work is much more fulfilling. Like, yeah, I really feel like I'm having a positive impact on the world, which I might not have if I just went into a, a random corporate job. Um, I got to admit, I actually just have really cheap taste. <laughs> I, uh, I don't particularly like fancy things. I yeah. don't, uh, I'm happy to kind of travel on the cheap. Um, I still feel a bit like an undergraduate in some ways. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I don't really like... I, I'm, I'm saving money, basically, on, on, on the income that I have from the nonprofit sector. Great. Uh, so, that's not an issue. And, and also, you know, uh, I enjoy being able to share my ideas with people. Uh, it, I guess I don't have a lot of capital capital, but, you know, since I have kind of cultural capital, yes. uh, pe- people, like, listen to the show, they, like, read my articles, and um, maybe, maybe that gives you, like, a different kind of status that uh, is, is also fulfilling, if if you're mo- I'm honest about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're also one of the, I mean, uh, uh, this, is a, this is only really the second time I've met you, but... I have um, I feel like I almost meet you every day on Facebook. <laughs> you're one of the best, uh, I guess, utilizers of social media I've ever seen. Every day, I think you've, you're putting out posts or links to articles that are stimulating, genuine. I, I don't think I've seen on anyone else's profile, let alone even a page, the same level of intellectual debate as I see you generating on Facebook of all places. Firstly, do you have some sort of goal here um, is this like you know brand building or something secondly what, what uh, techniques are you using are you scheduling posts how do you find the time to do it
0: yeah, so um, <laughs> my, my Facebook presence, it's uh, a, mix, a mixed blessing. So what, what is going on there? I, I think it, it started just because I have this compulsion to like, share my ideas. So uh-huh. I like, read a lot, I spend a lot of time. Like I said, I had cheap, t- cheap taste. And like, one of the things that I most enjoy doing is just reading articles on the internet. And yep. then I'm like, oh, I love this. I want to share this with people. Or like, I thought this was stupid. I want to say why it's stupid. Um, and I've been doing that basically since 2006 or 2007. Uh, Facebook turned out to be the, the, the place where I think you get the largest audience and, and reaction to that. I guess that this was before Twitter, although t- Twitter has serious problems because you, you can't really write anything substantive on there. Mm. But people are absolutely addicted to Facebook, right? So people are just always checking Facebook. But a lot of the t- but they often complain that kind of the content on there isn't isn't very good. Uh, so if if you actually put interesting articles on on Facebook, um, you know, add your commentary, and then have like other smart people responding to it. Uh, you have this kind of captive audience because Facebook has figured out how to like <laughs> compel people to come back to Facebook because they're so addicted to it. And then yeah. you can like drive them into, into reading your, your ideas. So I don't know why other people haven't done it. I guess uh, maybe other people are, like actually running for newspapers yeah. rather than just on their own Facebook yeah. wall.
1: Um, I guess you what, could say you're, you're the first person to find out a way to create social benefit <laughs> out of Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Facebook. I think it may well be a
0: bad thing. And, uh, and I'm not sure sh- like, it does take up probably more of my time than it ought to. Certainly it yeah. has, like uh, when I was an undergraduate. Um, but it, it, it has produced some benefits for some people. And It's been a, a, a somewhat useful way of, of promoting uh, some of the ideas that, that, that I really care about. Uh, what, what, ha- what, what's, what advice would I give to people? One thing is, like, um, it takes many years potentially to build up a good audience of <laughs> readers, especially of readers who leave good comments. Um, so I have been posting articles, uh, that I think, uh, intellectually stimulating on there for about 11 years. So that mm-hmm. does allow you to, you know, attract, uh, smart people gradually over time. Uh, and, uh, I have, I do like probably I have posted several things a day, probably on average over that time period. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you can imagine the amount of wasted time <laughs> from my own yeah. life. Um, what else can I? What else can I say about that? I guess I wouldn't recommend that people do this. Okay, <laughs> it, I get, but but if you find yourself uh, compelled to post things on Facebook, uh, I recommend kind of off like quoting things from the article so people mm-hmm. don't have to click through and they can read the most interesting paragraph and offer your own offer your own response
1: mm-hmm.
0: and perhaps also cultivate people who will leave interesting comments and and I think if there's people who are kind of toxic and like, uh, leave comments that are kind of nasty, then my recommendation would be to just, just to delete them. Cause you yeah. want to create kind of a nice intellectual community.
1: Yeah. And in a sense, it's, it's your, you know, your house, you don't want people coming in and trashing it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I've actually used that analogy, mm. uh, um, before when people say, well, why don't you let people comment? I'm like, well, I don't just allow total strangers into my house to kind of like shout abuse at me mm. and my friends. So, um, if, if the, the, people can say whatever they want elsewhere, but yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> so you, you, I mean, you have a role that's very intellectually challenging how do you balance your Facebook use against what, uh, you know, I guess Cal Newport would describe as deep work? I fail
0: to. I fail to. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, so I do block myself from Facebook. I have one of those apps that like prevents me from going there at a particular cool. time today.
1: day. Which one do you use? Uh,
0: Freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, potentially quite useful. Unfortunately, what s- p- part of my role is promoting our content uh, on social media. So I guess I kind of take yeah. the hit for the rest of the team that, that I do that and other people get to have more peace of mind. Uh, well, I've also At various points in time Like I'll just take like Three months off Of social media uh, So just like Completely block it And close my account uh, While yeah. I potentially uh, Do more deep work mm. um, but, the, but the truth is I haven't found a, haven't found a Great solution to this Yeah
1: um, yeah, it's a um, it's a process of constant sort of flirtation and avoidance. And yeah. That's why and, we have to rope in these various apps. And, and
0: internal conflict. And <laughs> exactly. I think one thing I would say is that um, a lot of the things that I post are things that I'm encountering through my work one way or another. So, yeah. you know, often if I'm doing research, I'm like, wow, that was an interesting article. Like, I'd, I'd love to share that with people and get their thoughts on it.
1: Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely some sort of creative process to what you're doing.
0: Yeah. I think yeah. that's right. I'm kind of like uh, putting up drafts of my ideas as I go. Yeah. Um, that's not all of it. There's definitely some time wasting in there as well. But, uh, but <laughs> some, some of it's useful.
1: So, Rob, it's now time for the final five. Are you ready? Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. First question, what is the last thing you do at night and the first thing you do in the morning? Um, you're going to get me on
0: like bad habits, <laughs> bad, bad habits again, I think. Um, so, I'm like... I'm not. I'm not a great person in terms of like personal systems and you know living <laughs> living like a super clean life. I, I guess uh, I'm surprised bro- bro- to hear that. <laughs> um, probably the last thing I do uh, at the moment is watch uh, the Colbert Late Show. Uh, okay. So uh, your listeners will be aware, I think, that uh, like the politics, the United States is a little bit depressing at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> but it is it is good to laugh at it uh, at least. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with, with, with the with the, um,
1: the least we can do.
0: Exactly. Um, in the morning. Uh, snooze my alarm <laughs> <laughs> how many I, times
1: on average two or three okay yeah. I'm about the same actually mm. it's the sweet spot the second question what is one thing that you hold to be true that most or the rest of society doesn't agree with you on yeah this
0: is a, yeah, a classic question yes um, so this is like a bunch, of, a bunch of unusual political views and I guess philosophical views I have um, I think one of them that shows up quite often in uh my attitudes to like practical questions is that i guess i don't believe in kind of uh, persistent personal identity so my m- the way that i think about personal identity is not that kind of i'm Rob for my entire life i'm just like one same person mm-hmm. uh, all the way through uh i'm just like a, per- a, a kind of a set of properties that are changing over time and so I'm kind of like myself when I was 10, but I'm kind of, I'm not really the same person. It's just a question of degree kind of. So you can imagine someone who's like a completely different person or maybe not even a person at all. And you say, well, they're like zero similarity. And then you've got like me now compared to like me in five seconds. It's like close to one, Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of a sliding scale. And and as, and as you uh, age uh, over time, like you just become gradually a different person uh, at, at every point in time. Um, yeah, that shows up in kind of issues of like moral responsibility mm. uh, and questions of uh, like, what if you could you know, take one person, make them two? What if you could like take a person and then like put them on a computer? Would they be the same person? Um, would it be good to extend someone's life? Um, actually, that, that, that reminds me of another one. So, uh, I think that it would probably be pretty good if we could just um, end aging altogether. Uh, and people could decide when they wanted to die. Um, that, that's I,
1: definitely a controversial opinion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's very very divisive. Yeah, some people yeah. are very on board with that. Some people yeah. think that it's, uh, that it's a bad idea. Um, I, I could put up a link to uh, what I think is a good video about that. that okay. I think, uh, advances maybe. I, I mean, I guess I also think um, it is... If humanity survives for a thousand, another thousand years, I think we'll figure out a way to basically uh, stop aging. I think it's, it's going to be a very difficult technical problem, but mm. I, don't, I, I would be surprised if it was an impossible thing to do. Mm. Um, and I think it would basically be good if people could live as long as they, as they would like to.
1: Yeah. There's certainly some promising signs at the moment um, coming out of the science of aging
0: yeah I mean I'm not expecting to live forever. i think no, yeah. <laughs> it'd be very surprising if it happened soon enough that it't ah, do anything for me but uh
1: it's a depressing thought <laughs> Any other contrary truths?
0: ooh what is there um I guess I think that we could probably increase immigration several times over, and that would be you know good for Australia or the u s and also good for the for the migrants but i I suppose there's there's the question now of political blowback about that that maybe uh even if it's good in a direct sense it uh Leads to bad, um, bad political outcomes uh, down, down yeah. the line. Uh, what else? Maybe, maybe I'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah. I, I have other controversial views. I, think, uh, <laughs> I think that's a pretty good uh,
1: survey of your yeah. opinions. The first one, I mean, we've, we've had a, quite a few philosophers on the podcast, but no one has spoken about the, the personal identity idea, which is uh, like a Derek Parfit.
0: So in reasons and persons, there's a lot of exploration of this. I, I don't completely agree with uh, Parfitt's views, I mean, or okay. maybe I just have kind of a different emphasis. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, we, we can stick up a link to, to some articles about this. Like yeah. Personal identity question uh, and kind of the paradoxes that you get if you take the standard view that someone's just the same person um, all the way through their life. Yeah.
1: Okay. Third question: What is the worst piece of advice that you've ever received relating to your career?
0: Um. Some people have suggested that I should go into politics, that I should, act, that I should actually run for office. Um, Why not? I guess, you know, ne- never say never. Um, it, sounds like, it sounds like a very stressful thing to do, um, constantly being in the, in the public gaze like that and having people have a go at you. Um, maybe also, I feel like perhaps I'm just a bit too honest a lot of the time about, uh, I think yeah. it'll be very hard to, uh, not to, a do, fit. To, to do the political thing that maybe yeah. it's not the right personal thing, <laughs> but uh, maybe I could become more circumspect as I get older
1: question number four what's one thing that you've changed about yourself in the last year
0: um I guess I kind of do have the view that um people once they're adults don't tend to change a ton uh that like very often kind of your strengths remain your strengths and your weaknesses remain your weaknesses uh and very often people do better by uh trying to find a role in which their kind of strengths are important and their weaknesses don't matter so much rather than uh trying to dramatically change who they are
1: okay what brought about that realization
0: um I guess just like observation of people, look at people like
1: overturning the whole self development industry here.
0: Ah, I mean, there's. It's worth trying to improve yourself, but like maybe don't count on it. Don't, at least yeah. don't count... Uh, like, you can develop absolutely new skills and habits, but it's hard to change kind of these fundamental uh, things all of the time. Like If you're an agreeable person, it's, uh, you're probably going to be agreeable in 20 years' time. Mm. If you're very conscientious, you'll probably still be conscientious. And if you're kind of disorganized, there's a good chance you'll still be dis- disorganized. But that doesn't mean you can't make progress because yeah. um, you can find roles in which you know being disorganized isn't such a huge problem, uh, Yeah, where maybe, maybe it's even a benefit.
1: Yeah, at least as far as those habits are concerned. And I think Daniel Kahneman says that one of the most profound realizations he had in the behavioral sciences was it's more about changing your environment, not not yourself. That's the most effective thing we can do.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about that, but that does kind of fit with my observations a bit. Okay. Um, uh, How have I changed though? I guess I've become more focused on good communication and less focused on kind of getting attention and being a bit inflammatory. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think when I – when I was younger, I kind of enjoyed riling people up and potentially saying things that were like not entirely well thought through, uh, in a, you know, in order to get a rise out of people. Okay. Uh, these days, uh, I just find that a bit cringy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I uh, just try to kind of explain things in a pretty uh, plain way uh, and like, you know, think things through before, before speaking to a greater degree than I did before uh, and not presenting things in kind of an unusual, in a provocative light, just trying to make things seem sensible rather than... Um, than uh, peculiar
1: yeah i think most of us probably look back on our <laughs> younger selves with a, a fair degree of cringing
0: i think this is a pretty common change as people get older you're like look at the things you write when you're 20 and just like facepalm
1: exactly okay question number five do you have a final message for our audience
0: uh this is, this is the chance for me to pitch my stuff isn't it plug so, plug away <laughs> so yeah i um have this podcast the Eighty Thousand hours podcast um, we do We do deep dives into you know what we think are the most uh, pressing problems and you know concrete things that you might be able to do to, to solve them and, and make a real difference. We also have just kind of some uh, fun episodes where we discuss you know topical issues um, with with people who 've often written books about them or written articles about them uh, i think it 's quite a lot of fun i think it 's uh, pretty informative. I really love the kind of long interview format that, that we 're doing here and that we do on the show. It allows you to kind of Learn a lot more about a topic than you typically do in just, mm. you know, a magazine article or a newspaper article where mm. the journalist only has an hour to write it. So, they, they make mistakes um, and they, they don't really get enough detail if you'd actually do anything uh, with, with what you're reading. Um, so, check it out. Um, i trying to think which which episodes would I recommend. I think uh, the episode with Will McCaskill,
1: would, great episode,
0: yeah, would be very interesting to people if they're interested in kind of the moral philosophy mm-hmm. that, that we've been talking about. If you're interested in setting priorities uh, mm-hmm. globally, then maybe the episode with Holden Karnofsky, who founded GiveWell and now runs the Open Philanthropy Project, uh, could could be a good option. We, we've got, I think. Uh, three three long episodes now about kind of pandemic control. Mm-hmm. We've got three episodes on um, artificial intelligence, both kind of the technical side and mm-hmm. and the policy or strategy side. Uh, we've got uh, the, the episode with Philip Tetlock of course about government decision making and, and how we can improve that we've got a number of um, episodes on factory farming which didn't come up here so uh, why we think factory farming is is, is really quite uh, morally abominable and what could be done to, to end it uh, without really having to, in- to inconvenience people at all so yeah if, if any of those topics are interesting to you then uh, pull out your phone and type in 80,000 Hours Podcast and, uh, and and bring it up and uh, see, see, what, see if you like it Um Also, we have our career guide, which we've been talking about on our website. Um, It's just got a lot of really useful information there. Even if you're not interested in doing good doing good with your career, I think uh, people can learn a lot. uh, That's quite actionable. We have this. uh, I've been talking about how I'm a bit bit skeptical of self improvement, but uh, our most popular article is how to be successful in any career, which talks about things that you actually can do that that make your life better across a whole lot of different. Domains, including your personal life and your professional life, mm. you know, mental health, where to live, that kind of thing. Uh, so so check, check that one out. Uh, it's, a, it's a reasonable place to start. Um, otherwise, if you're inter- if like, this is all interesting to you, then you should seriously consider getting involved in, in the effective altruism community as a whole. Um, so there's, if you just type in effective altruism into Google, you'll get a bunch of sites. Um, mm. There's the effective altruism handbook would be a decent place to start reading. Um, there's a list of resources page uh, resources on effective altruism dot com, um, and there's also this conference, Effective Altruism Global. Uh, so that that's coming up in a month. Well, I guess when this comes out, it'll be about two weeks in San Francisco. So it might might be too late for people to apply and go to that one. But there's one in Melbourne this year, I okay. think in June or July. Yeah. So uh, if you'd like to meet more people who are uh, you know involved in eighty thousand hours or, or related issues, then. Um, you can apply to, to go to that. I think it's it's not too expensive and mm-hmm. there'll be a couple hundred people there. Uh, so, we'll stick up a link to, to the application form for that.
1: Yeah. Well, Rob, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: It's uh, It's been a lot of fun. I uh, yeah. hope to talk again soon.
1: Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you, my friend, for listening to that incredible conversation with the great Rob Wiblin and everything we discussed, all of the links that we mentioned And all the topics that we covered are available in the show notes on our website, thejollyswagman.com. So, you can find that all there. And if you're enjoying what we're doing, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people who might be interested in this show to find it as well. So, thank you. And until next week, this has been great. Ciao.